Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Today we are joined by Dr. Rick Nab. Dr. Rick Nab is the former director of the National Hurricane Center and is currently the hurricane expert for the Weather Channel. He is a forecaster and a communicator in a time when hurricanes are setting all types of records. After last season in Florence, we have plenty to get into, so let's dive right in with Dr. Rick Nab. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Rick, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Marshall. And I really love the podcast platform. I'm an avid podcast listener, yes. including out to Weather Geeks, of course. Yes. And it's wonderful because you can listen to it while doing just about anything else as opposed to like video. Well, yeah, you know, I, I drive over to the University of Georgia every day. And so now I'm a podcast since I've been doing podcasts. So and we certainly have a lot to talk about with you. Uh, it's been an active last two years of hurricanes. And, you know, in the television version of Weather Geeks, we had about 18 minutes. We can do a deep dive today because we've got about 40. So let's just jump right in now. We're right on the heels of Hurricane Florence, uh, in a way, a game changing storm. So I want to dive right in with some conversation, because one of the things that people have been talking about are what are we learning from storms like Florence? And one of the big things that has come up is the Saffir Simpson scale. What are your thoughts on and I've been vocal about it. I've been saying we don't necessarily need to get rid of the Saffir Simpson scale, but we certainly need to think about, it, uh, you know, augmenting it, perhaps or thinking it carefully. What are your thoughts? You know, this has come up after nearly every storm that's not a major hurricane. And, I, and, and first of all, before you finish yeah. your answer, I've been telling media that, too, because I've been getting calls from media, mm -hmm. and they, it's like it's new. But in our community, this is something that's not new. Not at all. And in fact, it even has come up after past major hurricanes when we've compared them, like the Charlie-Katrina comparison when Charlie was a smaller Cat 4, Katrina was a larger Cat 3, and which one was the broader disaster, which one was the storm surge disaster and the category didn't line up with who had the worst storm surge right. disaster because Katrina being larger uh, was that. But it is a legitimate question that comes up every time is, is the categorization of hurricanes hurting or helping? And you can break it up into different avenues that we could go down. So yeah, the first legitimate question has been, should we get rid of the scale? Right. You know, and I will say up front that it is possible that if we knew then when the scale was first introduced, what we know now, maybe we wouldn't have used scales in the first place. Well, but, but one thing I want to piggyback on that answer, though, is when the scale was sort of, and I went back and looked at some of the history of this with uh, Bob Simpson and, 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 and Saffer, who or he was an engineer, I believe. They really were thinking about wind damage. And from what I can tell, it's pretty good. It sort of uh, Brian Brettschneider actually wrote something in Forbes recently called In Defense of the Storm uh, of the Saffir Simpson Scale, where he showed that it does a pretty good job with mapping wind damage. It absolutely does. And to this day, it still yeah. does. But it before long, it became used for categorizing the hurricane. The entire storm, and, not wind damage from right. the storm. And it took on a variety of uses, including giving uh, people some idea of what the storm surge uh, 
potential was. Right. And since that time, we've gotten a lot better at forecasting and depicting and communicating the storm surge hazard. And that's why a few years ago, we took explicitly storm surge out of the listing of what the impacts of a category one through five hurricane were. And we, and we started to de-emphasize the category, especially if we weren't talking about wind. Were you the hurricanes? I, I knew yes. that that happened and that happened under your watch as director of the hurricane center. Yes. Early on in that tenure, the, 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 the wheels were already turning in, motion, in that direction. Sure. Yeah. And, um, and then what we did after I got there, we, again, with a lot of work already having started on the topic was, okay, if we're going to to de-emphasize the category and we're going to take storm surge out of it, what are we going to do to better communicate storm surge itself? And uh, we moved toward and implemented new storm surge graphics, the potential storm surge flooding map, storm surge warnings and watches from the National Weather Service because we knew that we had to not only communicate the deadliest hurricane hazard of all, with its own warning, but we also knew how location-specific it was, not just storm-specific. And you take the same hurricane and you have it go up on the northern Gulf Coast, you're going to get a different storm surge result if you take the exact same hurricane and have it go into southeastern it, it, Florida. Exactly. So we had to get location-specific and hazard-specific instead of trying to categorize the storm with all these different hazards. But you're right, it is still, to this day, the Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale, the wind, wind scale. scale. Maybe is, we need to start saying that. Well, we have been. I, mean, it, and I know you, you are. Listed, listed you're... on the website, yeah. it's the Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale. And it is still, I think, a very useful communications device to hammer home, you've got a category four coming here. You've got to shelter from this kind of wind like you would a tornado right. and you know, that sort of thing. So that is one reason why I don't immediately jump to the conclusion that we should get rid of the scale. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I now, think it needs some augmentation yeah. or some supplementation in some way. Yeah. But there are other reasons why I'm not so sure that getting rid of the scale is going to solve the problems that have come to people's minds as a result of what happened well, in let's, Florence. let's talk about it. Because let's say, for example, the Hurricane Center decided, okay, starting in 2019, we're not going to use the scale anymore. Okay, let's just say they chose to do that. Now, maybe a lot of people would follow suit, mm -hmm. but number one, not everybody would. Right. And if you started seeing advisories where the winds are 140 miles an hour, then I'm sure a lot of people out there would say, well, this is what used to be a Category 4 hurricane. So it would take a long time for the category to leave our vernacular, right? right. And that's, that's actually been one of the reasons why I have not advocated getting rid of it. Yeah. There's such an inertia in the system, in the public cycle. Yeah, but there's even more to it than that, I think. And that is, even if you got rid of the categories and nobody mentioned it, you would still have the miles per hour. And there's no faking, there's no avoiding, there's no hiding that a weaker wind machine is still very capable of being a deadly water machine. Yes. And uh, you could easily envision people saying, well, the winds have come down from 140 to 90, so I'm not taking this very seriously well, we, anymore. We, we saw that. Yeah. Rick. I, there's a colleague of mine who knows of someone in Florence, South Carolina, that when it was Cat 4, they evacuated Florence, South Carolina from Florence. But then when it went down to Cat 2, they went back home. Yeah, and because I would argue that uh, th that could play out 
well after we obliterated the category system because people said, well, I, when I left, they said the winds were 130. And when I heard it was only 95, right. I decided this wasn't a big deal anymore. So, you know, the atmosphere is never going to stop throwing us these curveballs where wind isn't as strong and as damaging and as catastrophic as in a cat four or five. Right. But it is still going to be because it's large, because it's slow moving, because it's both, because it hits an area that has gotten a lot of rain recently, because it runs into areas with a lot of mountains that squeeze out the moisture because the river's already high, you know, on and on and on. You can have rain-induced flooding disasters without a really, really strong hurricane or storm based on the wind. We, that, we've seen it. We've yeah, seen we've, it with Harvey. We've seen it with Allison. Yeah, now yeah. we've seen it with Florence. So we can't uncategorize ourselves out of that problem. Right. That is still, to me, a fundamental challenge that we all have, and that is how do we convince people to be more afraid of water? And consider that in Florence, a lot of the fatalities happened with vehicles on flooded roadways long after the category had gotten out there so, long after the forecast, long after the rain had fallen, and long after the flooding had already occurred, and people are still driving into the water-covered roadways. Let's hammer on that a little bit, because that's a great point. I mean, I, I mentioned this in a couple of places as well, because if you remember back in 2017 with Harvey, there was all of this discussion about whether people should be getting out and evacuating, and did the mayor make the right decision? And one of the points that he made at that time is that, a lot of people die in their cars in these storms. And you're suggesting, I hadn't seen the actual breakdown on the numbers, but there in Florence, we've seen this yet again, where people are dying in their cars, driving through flooded I did see one case where a mother uh, drove around a barricade and the, and the baby was swept away. There, but, yeah, there was that case and there are other cases where the vehicles were uh, pushed off the roadway and then the person drowned. There were other cases where the, the roads were slick and that caused an accident. There are other cases where people drove into a tree that had already fallen on the roadway. Yes. You know, see, these, these are inland fatalities that we've seen uh, occur many times. Of course, we saw fatalities in this case from tree falling onto home, right. from carbon monoxide poisoning. So, you know, all of the fatalities causes, both direct from the forces of the storm and indirect by the circumstances of the storm, have reared their ugly heads again. And one of them is the, uh, the direct forces of water sweeping a vehicle off the roadway and the people, uh, one or more, the, the, the occupants drowning. And that, you definitely have gone long past the forecasting and the category and all that. And now the floodwaters are right in front of that person's eyes yeah. and they still get themselves into trouble. So that that's a that's getting to be a non-meteorological discussion. That's, that's a what do we do to get more afraid of water discussion. Well, and period. And I, I think that's I think that's key. I think water's just not scary to people. I think mm -hmm. people are familiar with rain, they're familiar with floods and they weigh the risk and say, eh, I mean, I've seen a lot of rain before, so I think that's right. One of the other interesting things about Florence, and we saw this, I guess, with Matthew, is the riverine flooding. Because the point yes. you're making is well after the rain stops, sometimes the peak flooding, is, at least from the river standpoint, is still to come. Yeah, and we've, we've used the phrases for many years that inland flooding can happen hundreds of miles away from where the hurricane first comes ashore and for days or if not weeks after the rain stops falling and yes. we're still seeing uh, as we sit here speaking yes. uh, the rivers have been coming up uh, and we're only two years removed from that having happened in Matthew and we're less than two decades removed from that having happened in Floyd, Floyd yes. so this is not a new occurrence 
unfortunately, in the Carolinas. And South Carolina had the the loosely related to Joaquin flooding in 2015. Uh, So we've had uh, riverine flooding and flash flooding and a number of uh, fatalities and billions of dollars of damage from inland flooding in the Carolinas before. So I... Uh, I, I, like you, I'm heartbroken by the fatalities. I'm heartbroken by the scope of the damage. I'm heartbroken that so many people don't have flood insurance. And that's um, another interesting part of the story. Yeah. And and I think that comes into the, we're not afraid enough of water to get insured for it. Right. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that, that a little bit later in the show as well, but it's interesting that you talk about Florence. What are some other lessons learned? We, 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 Spend a good time on the Saffir Simpson scale and the the water. What are some other lessons learned? You're one of the top hurricane experts in the world. What are some of the things that you've seen from this particular event yeah. that we've learned? Well, I'll quickly throw out that I don't think augmenting the scale is going to help either. I think right. I think I, I'm pleading for the rest of the world to not add to add more categories. So you to don't want to add like no. a Cat One mm-hmm. RS or because I've seen this thrown out there. And there's a colleague, Jason Sinkbile, out at University of Alabama that has an alternative scale. But you don't you don't think any of that's no. going to work? I, I think having multiple scales categorizations out there in real time as a hurricane is approaching is going to throw people for so many loops. It's because you want to keep it. And I agree with this. You want to keep it simple because the more complexity yeah. you add, the more confusion. Yeah, let, yeah. Let's say you had a, you categorize it for each hazard and you've got a W three for wind and you've got an R five for inland flooding. And you've got an S two for storm surge and you've got an R two for rip currents. I mean, people will just, get so confused by that and also fundamentally and this really gets to your question what have we learned from florence it fundamentally i think it is far more effective to give people forecasts warnings local officials and emergency management decisions when the hazard and the information are specific to their location and are hazard specific so for example in the case of new Bern, north carolina Okay. There was a storm surge warning in effect. Yes. There were evacuation instructions in effect. There were storm surge numbers valid for that specific area. So that was hazard-specific, location-specific information. And that, I think, is far more, especially in the long term, uh, going to succeed in getting people to act than is a categorization of the storm itself. So I'm fundamentally against trying to categorize the storm. I'm more in favor of forecasting and warning for and giving people instructions for hazard-specific, location-specific information that I can say, this applies to you. And where you are in the storm has a lot to do with what you're going to experience and what warning you should get and what hazard we should be talking about and what action we should be talking about. You try to put all that into a categorization system, we're all going to uh, we're all gonna be pulling our hair out. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. 
welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and we're talking today with former National Hurricane Center director, Dr. Rick Nabb, who's also the Weather, Weather Channel's hurricane expert. And you've been kind of dissecting the sort of post lessons from Hurricane Florence. And, you know, one of the sort of buzzword sort of discussions after Florence has been the Sanford Simpson scale. And you've heard Dr. Nabb's perspective on that and the sort of over categorization. And my philosophy in life is always kind of the KISS philosophy. you got to keep it simple, as they say. Uh, so, if we can't categorize the storm, and you've given a good example of how, and I think a lot of this came from lessons learned from Sandy with the sort of storm surge products that are being produced now. WPC, I heard, I saw Bill LaPenta in, a, in an article talk about the fact, well, the flood, we, we had good numbers out there on what we expected from Harvey and from Florence for the rainfall, and they did. I give them the props, shout out to the, all of the NOAA colleagues, WPC, Hurricane Center. But People aren't looking at QPF forecast no, maps. They're no. not getting that kind of information. So how do we, I mean, we know it's out there, but how do we get that rainfall information to them? Well, first I would make the case that how many raindrops fall isn't really the issue. Okay. I mean, we, can count, we can count raindrops all day long, okay. but how much it matters to uh, a, a citizen who's in the path of that heavy rainfall is only going to really get through to them and cause them to act if it is translated into does that mean it is going to flood in my community is my home going to flood do i need to stay do i need to go what do i need to do about that and how much rain is too much rain has a lot to do with how much rain you've gotten in the weeks leading up yeah, to it. how, yeah, how yeah, moist exactly. is the soil right. how high are the rivers right. and, and in the weather service vernacular we talk about uh and we've shown this on the weather channel flash flood guidance you know how much rain does it take to cause flash flooding so a rainfall forecast isn't taking the information and the actionable information all the way to the finish line we have to translate it into what are the chances that it's going to flood and what do I do about it? Right. And we had at the National Hurricane Conference back in the spring, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I led a panel session with a number of emergency managers and weather service folks about the concept of inland evacuation zones and inland evacuations. And it was partially post-Harvey, but it was also partially post-Matthew. We had the director of North Carolina Emergency Management. We had uh, forecast office folks from the Houston-Galveston area. I mean, so people who had been through the inland flood disaster before, and both meteorologists and emergency managers. And we talked about our, our motivation is to lessen the loss of life in, in rain-induced inland flooding, and that includes river flooding. Absolutely. What do we do about it? And there were two major categories of ways that we needed to approach the problem. One is how do we stop people from driving their cars onto a water-covered road? Exactly. And then number two, how do we deal with people who are really finding themselves, even if they're in their home, in a life-threatening flood rising waters in their community? And for the latter, that's what mostly happened in Houston. Houston was mostly not people dying in their cars. Matthew, it was uh, in North Carolina. But in Houston, it was mostly uh, people dying in, in, structures, their, in their structures, rising sure. waters in their community. So obviously, for the people driving their cars onto water-covered roadways, we have to do more to convince them not to do that or stop them from doing that. But with the rivers rising and waters rising, rising in your communities, if you 
could know the rainfall and flood inundation forecast far enough in advance or know that you've got a vulnerable riverside community or somebody that's near a bayou, whatever, can you get those people out in targeted limited evacuations ahead of time? And I think everybody thought that has some merit and we could head in that direction, but we still need to do a better job of forecasting the rainfall, forecasting the inundation. Right. And that's harder. But I think post-Florence, that that discussion could accelerate a little bit. I, I agree. If we, even if you don't have an inundation map in front of you from the Weather Service, if I'm an emergency manager, I could say, you know what? I've got these riverside communities that have flooded before. I'm just going to get the most vulnerable, frequently flooding people out and then block that area off block off roads that typically flood and more aggressively barricade roads so people don't as frequently find themselves confronted with that turnaround don't drown decision you couldn't even get to get that to water that covered road anyhow yeah. right that's a great so, point so it isn't just about better meteorological communication or better meteorological forecasting i think it's more aggressively taking actions that lessen the chance that people are in the flood yeah in and the first place. And, and ex, ex, that's a great point. We're talking with Dr. Rick Nabb, National Hurricane Center, former director of, and currently the Weather Channel's hurricane expert. He's now found his way back home to the Weather Channel. It's great to be back. I, I want to shift gears here a little bit and talk about the modeling and the forecasting. Uh, let's get weather geeky here for a second. Because we were talking about, as a community, this potential for a North Carolina landfall for some time, if you were kind of really paying attention to this meteorologically. And that kind of panned out. We were talking for a good bit of time about the possibility that it may stall. Steering currents were going to be weak. So that kind of happened. The intensity, well, we know the intensity challenge is still out there. So overall, your assessment of the modeling and forecasting of the storm. Yeah, and you got to talk about track and intensity a little bit separately, mm -hmm. even though in many cases they are interdependent. Yes. But we had a pretty good idea that Florence was at least going to have a chance to make landfall in the eastern U.S., the chances were there based on looking at a large number of track model scenarios, looking at the ensembles mm -hmm. of the European and GFS model, looking at a variety of models, uh, but also just looking at the overall steering pattern. We saw, again, this massive, strong, deep layer ridge pattern forming over the northwest Atlantic uh, and it just didn't look like there were many rides out of town for Florence, right, before getting to the U.S., and yeah, it missed yeah. that one ride that could have taken it east of Bermuda. And once it missed that, the pattern in the atmosphere gave us high confidence that it was at least going to get close. You know, people often don't realize that hurricanes don't have their own steering wheel, That's right? right. Yeah. <laughs> Big, powerful hurricanes are still steered around by the larger mm -hmm. patterns exactly. around them. And that's one of the things that makes the track forecast, which is historically the mm -hmm. last several decades, improve because we have a, the models mm -hmm. have a better handle on those large-scale synoptic conditions, right? Yeah, and the synoptic conditions for Florence reminded me, once it started moving west and uh, between Bermuda and the Caribbean. It reminded me a bit of the Isabel scenario. Which where, I lived through in, in D.C. area five days without power in Maryland with that. Yeah, and Isabel was a tremendous wind and water uh, disaster and made landfall in North Carolina yep. and sent a storm surge out the Chesapeake and even flooded downtown Baltimore and all that. Yes. You know, didn't Obviously, Florence played out a little differently. But where it was similar was that the location of landfall 
was very well predicted by the models, by the Hurricane Center. And I was there in 03 uh, as a science officer. Mm -hmm. I remember we got the location of where it was going to reach land very well uh, forecast. The timing was a bit off, just like it was at Florence. And the intensity was too high in the forecast for Isabel. Same thing in Florence. Um, We often uh, have trouble figuring out how long a really intense hurricane is going to stay that intense. It's going to stay that strong. Yeah. And talk about it. I've written a little bit about this in an article in Forbes about the differences in why the models maybe struggle a bit more with the intensity changes. Talk a little bit about why the intensity forecast is a little different and difficult. Yeah, it's, it's mainly because it has to do not only with what's going on in the environment, but it has to do with what's going on in the inner core in the on much smaller time and space scales than what determines its track. And it has a lot to do with interactions between the atmosphere and the ocean and some of the details in the ocean-atmosphere interface. And then you really break it down to mesoscale convective uh, type of forecasting where you're trying to forecast the timing and uh, 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 strength of one or more concentric eyewalls and eyewall replacement cycles, yeah. and that changes the size of the hurricane. How do and, we get yeah. exactly? That's a great point because you know we have things like the the hurricane wharf, the H wharf, and those types of things. And you're right, a lot of the the processes related to intensification related to the energetics in the eyewall and the rain band, various things. And you know our models are still evolving, and you still have data that you need to kind of get at those scales in order to get at those processes. Yeah, you know, in order to get intensity forecasting to be exactly right you not only have to have a pretty good idea of what the general pattern in the atmosphere and the ocean is but then you also have to be able to collect enough data at the beginning of the forecast through an assimilation scheme to initialize the internal structures of the hurricane then you have to have a model that knows the physics of the atmosphere well enough to write the equations to model that and then you still have to get the track pretty good (laughs) because if you send the hurricane in the wrong place it goes a different goes over a different part of the ocean experiences a different atmospheric environment reaches land at a different time and then you have to be able to model the really significant changes in the inner core like uh, eyewall replacement cycles and you know florence seemed to have everything going for it to remain a very intense hurricane all the way up to landfall but in those couple of days before it hit the brakes right near the coast it struggled and we didn't completely understand why there was some wind shear that seemed to increase at times that we didn't think it was going to it just you know so difficult to forecast how that inner core evolves but we did uh, uh, we, the meteorology community, did a very good job of being able to tell, again, back to track, that it was going to slow down and be in weak steering currents when it was near or over the coast or just inland. And that's why we were you know, raising the alarm about a long duration event and a, a rainfall induced flooding disaster and that it was going to be a larger hurricane by the time it got to the coast as opposed to when it was farther offshore because here's a here's one really big florence lesson that i hope we finally have drilled into our head and that is a a hurricane weakening is not always all good news 
I, I, I'm glad you said that because I'm quoted out there in an AP Associated Press story where I said I'm on record as saying in that quote, uh, in some many ways, I felt the storm was more dangerous when it was Cat 2. Because everything considered equal, yeah. a larger hurricane is worse than a smaller one because— Especially if it's stalling or stopping. Yes, and, and yeah, that, that, that you add, you know, you, you just pile on to the problems, right. but everything else considered equal— a larger hurricane is going to be a longer duration of wind, so longer time for the gusts to cause damage, take power out. Longer duration of rainfall, even if it's going the same speed as a, slow, as a small one. And a larger hurricane is a much more effective storm surge producer than a smaller one. So right. large is bad, and most major hurricanes, when they go through a weakening process, especially if it has to do with internal structural changes, eyeball replacement cycles, it's going to get larger. Katrina did that. Sandy did that. Yeah. Ike did that. I mean, on and on and on. We see this over and over, and Florence did that. And so when it was weakening, you you saw the headlines and you heard the social media chatter and, and that, oh, thank goodness, it isn't as strong oh, as it I was. Know. Now, oh, yes, now that was good for lessening the overall wind mm. impacts, no doubt about it. Sure. But it was bad news for how large it was going to be. And then you add on top of that that it was going to be hitting the brakes because of the steering currents collapsing, and that's why— I went on television saying, this is a nightmare scenario. Yeah, I saw you when you said and that. I am really worried about a long-duration event, a disaster. This name's going to be retired, all that stuff. Absolutely. And But because the wind speeds had come down, people were discounting the fact that it was large and slow-moving. So, um, And that gets back to that initial conversation a little bit because the wind speeds and this categorization. But this thing had so many other dangerous aspects to it. Plus, let's not forget the tornadoes. Yes. So that and that, again, emphasizes why a a one system to categorize a hurricane, you would have to categorize not only the winds, the maximum winds, the strength of the winds. You'd have to categorize it based on its size, based on its forward motion, based on the vulnerability of the coastline it's going toward relative to storm surge, based on how much rain has fallen, based on whether it's hitting mountains or flat. Uh, you, you just, I, I just don't want to see us waste any more energy trying to categorize the storm. But... If you take the characteristics of the storm and then you translate them into very strong language and very strong local decision making, and hopefully then very well-informed uh, decision making on the part of the citizens who are being uh, threatened by these hazards, and you make them hazard specific and location specific, and we get used to being afraid of a storm surge warning, we get used to being afraid of seeing water covering the road in front of our eyes, yeah. and we get used to being afraid of seeing the uh, flags up at the beach when it's a high rip current risk, and the, the, the beach is closed, and the lifeguards are saying, stay out. If we get more afraid of water, where it is threatening us locally, and all the different ways that hazards uh, that are water related can get us that is where i think the the success will lie i mean it's it's easier to want to uh tell all the meteorologists well categorize it some other yeah, way or sure. say something different you know but just we, gotta we, we've got to change the psyche of yeah. how we fear these storms yeah as social scientists have described it to me we we have to make being more afraid of water a social norm yeah i think that's a great hashtag out there be more afraid of water <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to carvana 
It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast with Dr. Rick Knapp from the Weather Channel, who's the hurricane expert there, and talking all about lessons learned from Hurricane Florence and tapping into Dr. Knapp's vast years of experience uh, in the tropical meteorological community. There are two things that I want to kind of put out there to you and get your reaction to. One, this idea that uh, the storm was overhyped because there were some that were saying that, not just the public and Twitter sphere, but even some media people and perhaps even others. So that's one. And then the second one is this idea of warning fatigue. We were talking about it so long that some people felt that there was going to be warning fatigue. So talk about the, uh, the this was overhyped element first. Why, do, why are we seeing that more and more? If we didn't have double digit fatalities and if we didn't have what looks to be like a multi-billion dollar disaster, then maybe I would entertain a conversation about whether or not we made too much of it ahead of time. But the loss of life has been... Well, it's not even just staggering, the, the and the, the cost will be cost. staggering. Yeah, look at all the, the, the poultry farms. Yeah, the, I was about the, to go there. The, the tar, agriculture, coal pit. The, the the business interruption, the agriculture, the people's homes that have been inundated uh, and damaged, the the long term uh, effects of not having power and communications and other infrastructure. How long it takes the community to get back to normal? All of those things, along with the staggering loss of life. Uh, you know, this was a big deal. Of course yeah. it was. So, it's going to be retired, like you said. This yeah. name will be retired. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, I, I, I felt confident in saying that ahead of time, not because of the category of the strength, but because of how long duration the storm itself was going to be because of its large size and slow motion. But given how bad it seemed like it was going to be with the water disaster, I knew... And we, a lot, most of us knew who, who communicated about it, knew it was going to be a water disaster that was going to take a long time to recover from. Um, so the fact that it was made a big deal out of, if that's what we mean by hype, I, I don't think there's any problem with hype. hype. It every you know, it's, time, it's if like, it's going to be like you know, that. The, the, yeah. yeah, the word hype is often used in association with a big sporting event that's coming. Oh, there's all hype. There's all hype. But you know, when 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 people don't complain about the hype for a big sporting event is when it delivers. Exactly. Okay. Great. And then Great you look point. back on the hype and go, well. You know, it, it, it makes sense that we were talking about it because it ended up being a very close competitive game. You know, right. that that's obviously a positive, more frivolous right. this uh, is analogy. Talking, right. But what I'm talking about, the, the point is, you get the point, and that is if you talk about something as if it is really dangerous and life-threatening and a really big deal for these communities and for their livelihoods, and then it ends up being a big deal that is taking lives and is uh, economically devastating and hard to recover from and a long-term uh, hit, uh, then uh, I'm all in on the hype, if yeah. that's what we want to call uh, it. Yeah, I was just, I, I actually was just dumbfounded by what I was seeing in various places uh, as we, and, and, I, and it was hard because you, people like you and I saw what this was going to be 
And I just was, it was saddening to see some people out there saying that because they were so focused on the elements that weren't going to be the dangerous aspects of the storm. And it just kind of brings home what you've been saying. And, and I think it does go back to less of a fear of water, right. more of a fear of wind. If there was a really tiny, fast moving cat four coming at us, then nobody would be saying those things. They'd be going, well, of course you should be hyping this yeah, buzz yeah. saws coming toward the coast. Exactly. And it could conceivably take fewer lives or take no lives, but nobody would question hyping it because, well, you, you make a big deal about a massively strong wind machine, even if it's not massive, even if it's small. So it goes back to the conversation about water, and uh, I just hope we can uh, use uh, what has actually happened and how bad it has been and tell all those stories as we are good at doing on the Weather Channel. We did it after last year's hurricanes. We didn't just drop the story after the storm came ashore and the waters receded and followed these communities and what happened. And uh, we've got to keep telling the stories of how deadly, how damaging, how economically uh, difficult it has been on people to recover because of water and, and just get more afraid of water. And then maybe if we get used to that mindset, yes. then maybe when we make a big deal about a big water disaster coming in addition to wind, because a lot of times it's both, uh, then maybe we won't uh, receive so much backlash. Hashtag be more afraid of water. Tweet that out there. If you're listening, you heard it on Weather Geeks, because that's I think it's critical. I'm, we're not I don't care about the credit or who said it or where you heard it. That's a key point that we need to inject into the psyche of Amer the American public and broader. Now, by the way, as we were dealing with Florence, there was a massive super typhoon in the Pacific at the time, too. Were you kind of keeping an eye on that as well? I'm, I have to yeah. admit, I'm always watching what's going yeah. on in the tropics, so, whatever part of the world. Yeah, Thailand, and, Thailand took a hit. Is that right? Yeah, not Thailand, um, uh, Philippines, I should say. Yeah, and, and China. Yeah. And, and you know, there are a lot of places that have been hit this year out in the West Pacific, yeah. and most of the really devastating impacts have been water-related. Water-related, sure. Uh, you know, and... And we're not just basing this on what happened in Florence and, and any other storms this year. If you look at the statistics over the last many decades, nine out of 10 people who die in landfalling tropical systems die in water. Right. Storm surge, rain-induced inland flooding at the beach on boats, and one out of 10 die due to the wind. And those are just the direct forces. And then you look at all the indirect fatalities that, that arise from the circumstances surrounding it. A lot of those are water-related as well yes. um, and are... Um, not because of wind killing you. They are because of some of the ramifications of water and wind taking out the power sure. and the nasty and lengthy aftermath, which is what we're going to be dealing with in Florence and, and people finding themselves uh, in less than ideal conditions that are in poor health. Um, there are just so many ways that uh, the aftermath of a wind and or water disaster can be so dangerous, and Maria drove that home more than yes, anything else. Yes. Uh, but we've had a lot of indirect fatalities, carbon monoxide poisoning. And, and, and just let's speak know, on that for a second, because yeah. there's been a controversy about this and who, how many people died in Maria. We've all, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, we've always, when we did the, do these kind of statistics, counted direct and indirect deaths. Is that right? It has become more thorough, yes. uh, the reporting of the indirect fatalities. And, you know, over the years in the Hurricane Center's uh, reports on every individual tropical cyclone, we didn't always really break down the indirect fatalities. Part of that was data collection and so forth was harder in the past. But when when Dr. Ed Rappaport, Deputy Director of the Hurricane Center, when I was there and who's still in that position, uh, 
you know, he was working on his indirect fatalities work when I was there. Mm -hmm. And I said, Ed, you take all the time you can because this is important work because as he found out, we've lost nearly as many people from the indirect causes of death uh, after tropical cycle or before, during, or after tropical cyclones, as we have from the forces of the storm. You know, the direct causes are the wind and water forces taking a life in the midst of the storm. You know, blunt force trauma sure. by flying debris and drowning in a storm surge or an inland flood. But the indirect fatalities are like cardiovascular failure sure. before, during, or after in in bad conditions. Uh, you get into vehicle accidents, you get into uh, problems with power outages. Power outages can be surprisingly damaging and deadly. Car- yeah, the carbon monoxide Pe- People issues. run their generators sure. improperly and die from carbon monoxide poisoning. People are dependent on medical equipment, and that fails in a power outage. They get electrocuted by touching a down power line. They light candles, and they start fires. I mean, power outages have taken a lot of lives. That's another indirect cause. Uh, and then the, the whole course of evacuation can be dangerous. Sure. So these indirect causes again, have been almost as deadly in total as the direct causes. And I think the main benefit from categorizing all of those and understanding the circumstances of the fatalities is so we can change and uh, improve our messaging to help people stay alive yeah. from the indirect causes right. just as much as the direct. And meteorologists, we, we want to protect people from the wind and the water, sure, right? Sure. But we got to mix in there. How do you protect yourself from cardiovascular failure? How do you protect yourself from a power outage? How do you stay out of trouble in your car? You know, and so even leading up to Florence, we were throwing in a lot of what to do, what not to do. this information. Yeah, yeah uh, to survive the preparation, survive the storm, and survive the aftermath. Uh, both from direct and indirect causes, and and a lot of the f- uh, Florence fatalities are indirect. Yeah, and and that's generally the case. Now, I want to I want to get your thoughts on that second question. Are, are, was there so much lead time? We were talking about this so much on Twitter that it was. Is that some people argue that's problematic? What are your thoughts? The farther in advance a forecast is issued, the more uncertain it's going to be. The more probabilistic it has to be. The more what ifs are going to have to be thrown in there. Uh, but I think. The five-day forecast lead time from the Hurricane Center, along with what the pattern and what the models and what the ensembles were saying, even beyond five days, we started talking about it well before five days, and I think in a responsible way, to give people as much heads up as possible, because you know what happens when people don't get enough lead time, then you hear that I was caught off guard, guard, and I didn't didn't know that this was going to happen, and all that sort of thing, so... um, when it's responsible and it gives people plenty of lead time to take action, I think the lead time is good, especially on the track forecast. Now, on the intensity forecast, again, uh, you know, the models aren't as good there, um, but the potential was there for not only a large and slow-moving hurricane with all the water problems, but the potential was also there for a very devastating hit from the wind, and we still got wind damage. Oh, sure. you know, you know, why aren't we afraid of a Category 1 or Category 2 hurricane in terms of the wind? You ever been through one? Yeah, they're, right. they're not fun right. in uh, terms uh, of the wind. So uh, I don't have a problem with the lead time. And um, I think that uh, the luxury of time that that gives people to do things that maybe they didn't do before the hurricane season, it gives them time to think through their evacuation zone and evacuation route. It, it, it gives them time to get supplies. It gives them time to 
uh, do things to their home to get it ready to lessen the chance that the home is damaged. It gives people to sandbag. Uh, there's all kinds of things that you can do with that luxury of time. So I don't decry advance notification of the possibility to motivate people to do things they didn't do a long time before. The only thing you can't do with a few days lead time is get flood insurance. That's a 30 day right. waiting yeah, period. And, and I think yeah. that you've heard Dr. Nab mention flood insurance and make sure if you live in these areas, you're prepared running a lot out of time, but I wanted to get your last thoughts because, you know, even during the midst of the lead up to the storm, I was, I was having press contact me about climate change links. And I don't like to talk about that in the midst of the lead up because I'm more concerned about the immediacy of the event and the disaster. Want to get your thoughts because there, you know, that conversation is going to be had as we've seen Hurricane Harvey and Lane and Maria, the typhoons that we're seeing in the Western Pacific. What can we say and cannot say at this point from your perspective about the leak? Well, first of all, we should be having this conversation yeah. um, as often as possible because we need to be all of us and as informed as we possibly can about what's changing with our planet so that we know what to do about it. Sure. Um, I'm concerned about the water impacts of tropical systems getting progressively worse, yeah. uh, not just from uh, pure observation of how many big flooding events we've had recently, but what the causes of those are probably pointing to. Uh, there even was a recent study pointing to how overall globally and especially unfortunately near the u.s that the forward speed of tropical cyclones is getting measurably slower and i'm also i've been concerned for many years now about how much we've had to deal with these larger hurricanes and tropical horizontally larger uh and when you consider what might be causing the slower forward speeds and you look at events like Harvey and Florence and even in 2017 with events like Maria and Jose moving slower than you would usually associate with a, a hurricane going right. just you know northward just off the east coast they didn't move all that fast and even stalled around for a while and and Hermine after it struck the Florida panhandle went off and stalled off the east coast so there's a lot more of this seemingly slower motion even stalling and you combine all of that with greater rainfall rates which are more and more being fairly clearly documented the in the scientific community rise, and then the sea level do- rise i think that's the one and, of the more conclusive things we can and say. then sea level rise is a clear one yeah uh, all of those things even if the numbers and strengths of hurricanes aren't changing and and that's an open question sure, and it's, it's really really hard to document that sure. uh, given the relatively short record uh, over which we're measuring the strength of a hurricane yes um, we haven't had satellites as long as we all think. Yeah. And, um, and I think people that are responsible in talking about this will acknowledge that, as you just yeah. did. But even if the, the numbers and strengths of hurricanes have been and, and will stay the same, and I'm not saying that's for sure, but let's say they do, I'm still concerned that the saltwater and freshwater impacts of tropical storms and hurricanes are getting worse anyway yeah. because of 
higher rainfall rates, sea level rise, larger storms, slower moving slower. storms. And you add into all of that more and more people living the near the coast and more and more people living in areas that didn't used to be urbanized. Right, great point. Uh, so now you've got uh, the greater potential for urban flooding disasters like we saw in Houston, which was made worse a, a, a flood-prone area made worse by there being a lot of concrete. Okay, sure. And, you know, the, the the roads have to be used as part of the flood drainage system because there's no other way to get the water all the way from the north side of Houston out to the Gulf of Mexico any other way. So right. uh, water, water, water. That's the that's the problem here. And I um, think that's a, that's a podcast <laughs> title, too, for our producers here, too. But uh, I think we – I want to just append to that. I mean, there were recent studies even by Professor Kerry Emanuel and colleagues at MIT that suggest even the – the storms like this are intensifying a bit further poleward as well. Yes, so there's that, plenty of that, evidence for that yeah, as well. And this yes. is a bit further north for a four, Cat 4 storm at the time, at least when it was taking aim at North Carolina. I hadn't seen too many at that strength at that time. So. Yeah, of course, you know, a, a, another reason why you can get uh, a really strong hurricane into the mid-Atlantic or northeast is if they're moving more, if they're moving really fast and they don't lose their intensity after leaving the Gulf Stream. Right. But now you get slower moving, larger ones, then they, then, they, then they stay there longer. And then even if they weren't as strong... Yeah. These larger, slower-moving, weaker systems can be bigger storm surge producers and bigger rainfall disasters. So I just hope that we can all learn to be more afraid of water, enough to not drive into it, enough to evacuate from it, enough to insure ourselves from it, enough to not go swimming in it. Uh, just stay out of the water and, uh, and insure yourself from financial disaster after a flood. Then you can not only survive the storm but recover in the aftermath. And that's where we're going to have to end it today. Dr. Rick Knapp, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Marshall. Great job with this podcast. I listen to every episode. Well, and it's, uh, I, and I, you know it's a great podcast when we didn't get to nearly everything I wanted to get to, but we had such a great discussion that I think we, we, we did what we needed to do for this, and we'll have you back soon. Uh, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from University of Georgia, and that's been the Weather Geeks Podcast.